The passage for this morning is Acts chapter 2. We'll pick up at verses 22 and go to 41. And the title of the sermon is God's Pursuing Love. I actually had started with the reckless love of God, and I thought, like Billy, like it probably needs a little explanation because what we're going to find this morning is God's love feels reckless to us. If we think about the extent he's gone to, but from his perspective, what we're going to see is it's the way it was always going to be. His plan A is what we get, and we sometimes are completely shocked by. And we're going to look at Acts 2. Acts is filled with speeches and sermons. And Peter, last week we saw the beginning of this sermon where he, um, filled with the Holy Spirit, is proclaiming that the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled in their midst. He's now going to continue and really direct this sermon toward the congregation. And it's intense. I want to prepare you for what you're about to read. It feels overwhelming. Like to hear the way Peter gets so truthful. But I want you to hear it as one who is rescued. Think about the words we're going to read as a, as a person who is actually rescued through this process. Because when you see it through that lens, when you see it as one whose love has pursued you through this speech, through this sermon, you'll notice how much his love really means to you. So let's read it together. Um, this is Peter's words to the, the gathering there at Pentecost in, is, in Jerusalem. We'll start at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by, mighty, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, will all, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that this is that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word, his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Let us pray. Father, like Theophilus, we come back to this story, maybe feeling somewhat removed. And yet, we read these words, your spirit is not only present in the sermon that Peter is preaching, but your, your spirit is present here in this place. And for those of us who are your, your children, your spirit illumines this scripture to our souls. But my prayer, Lord, is for those who are, don't know you. My prayer is that this morning your gospel may sound fresh and real to someone who doesn't already have a relationship with you. And for those of us who walk with you, I pray we would see this story and remember this is our story. This is our truth. So will you open our eyes to what's going on in this passage that we would see the reckless love that you have for us. Amen. Last week we talked about the Feast of Pentecost. Um, remember, you have thousands and thousands of Israel of Jews from all over the known world who've gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, it's a gathering time. The Pentecost means 50 days after the Passover. Very likely, these people have come for the whole time. Like it says, Jews that are dwelling in Jerusalem. They've probably come for some time. And when you read the list of the nations, a lot of these people came from a long way away. Now, I'm not a great trip planner, right? That would be a, a difficult trip to plan. Like you have to plan, like you're getting on a boat and you're sailing for like days or weeks and you're gonna come into Jerusalem and find a place to stay. And it's really a festive time. In fact, Pentecost is a celebration. It's a celebration of the harvest. So they probably arrived, they've celebrated the Passover, um, they've, they've bought the lamb or the turtle doves or whatever they were gonna take to the priest and it was slaughtered and, and then they were forgiven and they go through all of these things, maybe their family. And, and then when Pentecost comes, they're celebrating the harvest and, and what they're really doing is they're, in my view, is these are the people who are like, we've made it. Like, we have religion down. We know the law. We've read Leviticus 23. And this year, maybe we can't do it every year, but this year we can go. So the family comes together and they go. And it's a great trip. And everything's going to go amazing. And then there's this, like, loud wind. And everyone's like, what's that noise? We're trying to, like, have a funnel cake, you know? And like hang out. And now there's this loud, windy noise. And they all gather together. We saw this last week. And tongues of fire have come on not probably just the 12 apostles, but possibly the 120 disciples who are now moving into their midst, telling them of the mighty works of God. And in that time, they're hearing and preparing for this sermon of Peter. And you could, I don't know if you could hear a pin drop, but it's probably very quiet. And Peter begins to talk to them. And essentially what he says is this. All of this work you've done, all of the things you're doing 
are in a way like the original people who built Babel. Like this sense of I'm going to build a structure. I'm going to make a way to heaven on my own. I'm going to stand on my own value. And he's like, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. There's nothing that you've done that's good. In fact, everything you've done to come to this place right now has pointed to the fact that you need a Savior. In other words, you have missed Jesus. Now, the question for us this morning as we come into this room, we look at a story this old, 2,000 years old. We're the new Jerusalem. We've all practiced Christianity. We've all gone through the rhythms, and we've joined the churches, and we've made the confessions. The question is this. Are we missing Jesus? Are we getting so caught up and comfortable in the way we carry out our religion, the way we carry out our behaviors, the way we carry out our lives, the ways we do things, that we're missing the fact that Jesus is calling us to himself to say, you need me for your righteousness. Is that our story? So I think that this morning what I want to unpack is that I think often our plan A is to be really good, and then our plan B is when we mess up, we have Jesus. And I think Jesus is saying, actually, my plan A is you're messed up. And now you're going to come and I'm going to save you. And that's going to change you. So let's look at that. Three points. Peter's saying, let me tell you about Jesus. And point number one. Point number two, let me tell you about you. That's going to be a hard point. Be ready for it. I've got some dirt on each of you. Just kidding. And then point number three, let me tell you the plan. Okay. So number one, let me tell you about Jesus. Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth. That name rings a bell. You are in Jerusalem. You've been walking around. You've been in the gatherings. There's thousands of people, but certainly you've heard by now, like on the road to Emmaus, where like, you don't know what's going on in Jerusalem. Like someone was crucified. Now, it was not that uncommon to have those kind of events And more than likely, it was just assumed this is one of those rabble-rousers, one of those people that show up from time to time, get a little gathering, a little insurrection, and then basically, thankfully, the religious leaders in Rome got together and and cleaned that mess up so we could go back to our religion and our celebration. And Peter's like, you know that Jesus of Nazareth you've probably already heard about in your pilgrimage, in your time here? Well, that man was sent by God, and he did mighty works and mighty signs. And he was delivered up according to the plan of the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him, but God raised him. Now, there have been rumors of that. So they're probably now hearing like, yeah, we heard. Some people were saying that they, were, they saw him raised. So you're hearing this story, and it's starting to kind of give you chills. Like, could this be true? I've been dismissing that and really focused on doing my religious thing. And here I'm hearing that these rumors are true. Jesus was raised. And I love how Peter says it. God raised him up, loosing loosing the pangs of death. I pick, you know, the cords of death. I picture, sometimes we think of like Jesus' resurrection as this, and it is, don't get me wrong, like this miracle that just sort of happened, but what Peter seems to be saying through the Holy Spirit is it had to happen. I talked a few weeks ago and I used the wrong language, so I'm going to correct myself right here about Jesus's active, I use the word righteousness, active obedience. Jesus on earth as a man 
actively fulfill the law, all the law. And he did mighty things. He didn't just fulfill the law by sitting in the corner and trying not to say bad things. Like his fulfilling of the law brought in healing, brought in revival, brought in hard things he said to other people who didn't believe, right? It brought in righteousness. In fact, his active obedience led to his passive obedience, which means death on a cross. Like it literally led to that. The more holy you are, the more likely you'll be persecuted. Now, that, don't turn that around and go try to get persecuted and then say, look how holy I am. That doesn't work that way. But when we follow Christ, when we follow the laws of God, though it brings righteousness to us, it will bring scorn and persecution. And so Jesus was killed. But in his death, in the spilling of his blood, death was conquered. Here's the visual image I have. And this is slightly corny, but I think it's time for something to ease the, the weight. You're in a swimming pool and you see a volleyball and you think, I'm going to sit on that. I'm going to hold it down, right? What does it do? It just shoots up. It can't do it. Like you can't just keep it down. It shoots up. That's what Jesus does, okay? Is that cheesy? Jesus shoots up. You can't, death was done. The cords of death that hold us down were erased and he raises up. And he appears to so many people as a witness. But then I love what Peter does next. Under the authority of the Holy Spirit, he points to their hero. If you had gone to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast or this whole period of time, one of the attractions on your list, what are we going to do? One of the days, we're going to go to the tomb of David. There was actually a known location. It had been robbed twice. It had been attempted to be robbed. Eventually, someone built a marble structure, and they knew right where his tomb was. You would have seen that tomb. So Peter draws them into that story by saying, David, whom we all love, knew about Jesus. He knew that Jesus would not die and stay dead. In fact, in Psalm 16, what you and I, Peter might have said to them, think of as David's words are actually the words of Jesus. I saw the Lord before me. He was at my right hand that I may not be shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you, are, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter is saying these words, though the words of David were really prophetic and also are the words of Christ, giving us a way to see the Old Testament. That you imagine that walk to Emmaus, the disciples were not told who the two were, having a conversation with Jesus, and he shows them all of himself in the scriptures. Certainly at one point, he's telling Peter, like, that points to me, this psalm. When we read the Old Testament, we have the new and the old concealed. We mentioned that last week. But we also, in the New Testament, have the old revealed. And it's all pointing to Jesus conquering death, and then Peter goes on to say, quoting Psalm 110, he ascends to heaven and he is ruling and he's reigning from his throne. That's who Jesus is. Like, if you're in this room and you're sort of on the fence, like, do I believe, do I not believe? I'm going to say something I, I've never said before. It doesn't matter. Like, I, don't hear me wrongly. Of course it matters. But 
Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, whether you believe it or not. That's the claim of Christ. That's the claim of Peter. That's my belief. That's the belief of the church. That's what the Bible teaches. So the real question is, are you on board with that? That's the real question, right? So let me tell you about you. Is that cool? Can I tell you about you guys? I'm included in the word you as well. Men of Israel, maybe it's people of Israel, maybe only the men. I don't know why, so I'm not going to get into all that mess, but he's talking to several groups at once. One, the actual nation of Israel. Like This is a prophecy. Peter is fulfilling the prophecy from Joel. This is sort of, you know, when prophets write to Israel, I don't know who reads it. I don't know how they get the information. I don't know when they read it originally, how it got dispersed. But this is an official speech to Israel. That's one thing it is. Secondly, I would say, this is me, it's a speech to the whole planet. Like if you're a human, you need to know what's about to be said. Men of Israel, humans as well. But it's also a speech to the elect. Because the only people who are going to really be able to hear this are those who have been called by Christ. Right? It, it's, a, it's a special, there are 3,000 people believe at the end of this sermon, but there's many, many more thousands in that crowd who don't believe. So are you hearing the words? Who are you? Where are you? And I love what, I love what Peter starts with. Jesus of Nazareth, that's a very common name from a very common place, kind of a scornful place. He was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Again, maybe the person hearing that wasn't there when Jesus did it, but he's saying this to the crowd, to humans. This all happened. And I want to turn our attention to one place in, John, in Luke 4. There's a place in Luke 4 where, um, no, Luke 7 is what I want. I'm sorry. Where Jesus is doing these signs and these wonders, and John the Baptist, who's in prison, sends two disciples to him, and he's confused. And he says, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, what an interesting question, right? It's a very famous place in the Bible. And listen to what Jesus does. It says, in that hour, he healed many people with diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So he did all of that in their midst. And then he says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. The mighty works of Jesus in your midst. Here's my question to you. You're in Jerusalem. You paid a lot of money. The funnel cake is on the side. You're going to set that down. You're hearing this sermon. And you think of the mighty works of Jesus. And you're like, yeah, I've heard of these things. Dead people are raised. Blind have sight. Deaf can hear. That's so great for those people. Right? Good for those people. I mean, my business is going well. In fact, I had enough money to drive, to fly, or take a boat to Jerusalem, but they're doing great, but they needed help. Who are you? Are you the one that hasn't made? Are you the one that's right where you want to be? Are you the one that took the special trip? 
Or are you the one that's in that list? I'm going to read it again. The lame learn to walk. Oh, I'll start at the beginning. The blind receive their sight. The lame learn to walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. Lepers are cleansed. I'm jumping backwards and forwards, sorry. And the poor are being preached good news and the dead are raised up. Where are you on that list? Are you sick or are you healthy? Are you one of the ones Jesus came to save and rescue, Jesus of Nazareth? Or is he sort of a bother? Because you really have this thing figured out. Right? So Peter is turning up the heat. This Jesus of Nazareth, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. That's pretty intense. Right? So what do you do with that? How did you crucify Jesus? Is Peter just speaking in hyperbole? So here's where the heat comes up. When you sin, I should do a raise of hands. Who, does, who sins? Just kidding. And then we just, that's, that would be a really good thing once every now and then. I should put that in the bulletin. Come on up. Brian, you want to come up and tell us about your sin? Sorry. I'm going to pick on you every week. We often say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. In fact, we love our confession of sin because it's so general. And then there's that little moment where it says, now confess your particular sins before the Lord. How many of you just shut down? And like, I guess I, you know, maybe I lusted this week. The Westminster Confession asks us to do this. Confess your particular sin particularly. When's the last time you gossiped and you went to your journal and said, I spoke about fill in the blank, and when I did it, my goal was to harm them. And it felt lovely. Will you forgive me, O oh Lord? If you've ever looked at pornography, have you ever written, Lord, forgive me, I went to this site and this site and looked at this image. How particular are you getting? Are you going beneath the sin? Like, I'm turning to things instead of Jesus because I'm trying to build up my own tower as an autonomous person. Here's the point. Peter gets so close to their hearts, their response at the end of it is, what shall we do? When's the last time you've cried that out? What shall I do? Like, have I been so aware of my running from the Lord, so bothered by it, that I have cried that out recently? Have you ever done that? We had a baptism this morning with Max, and often we will tell you, Please remember your baptism. What does that mean? What we tend to do, well, let's see, how old was I? Depending on my age, I might remember it, I might not remember it, I probably have photos. That's not what we mean. What we mean is, what's your baptism story? How is your current life being lived out of the reality of your baptism? Are you aware that prior to being a Christian, you really wanted Nothing to do with Jesus to the point that you would have been delighted for him to die on a cross, to get out of your way. Is that your story? If it's not, then have you really received Christ? Have you really come to a saving faith in Christ? But if it is your story, where are you in the present tense? Are you aware now that when you don't live out of the spirit, you're doing that again? Are you taking in these truths? 
Brothers, says the crowd to Peter and to the apostles, what shall we do? And let me now turn to the plan. You want to hear the plan? I've got some good news for you. God has a plan. Hopefully, you feel a lot of weight right now, or you're just ignoring me. Both are okay. The weight of sin, the weight of death, it's on our shoulders. It's hard to read what Peter is saying and not feel that weight. And what we tend to do is ask the question that they ask. What things can I do to get this weight off of me? And Peter says, let me tell you the plan. So we go all the way back to the beginning of the passage. There's this plan of redemption. Tom mentioned it this morning in the Sunday school class. You have this kind of congruent reality going on. You have on one hand in verse 23, Jesus is delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, and yet you and I crucified him. Both are true. So here's the really, really good news. God knew you would do what you've done. God knew your sins past, God knows your sins present, and he knows your sins future. He knew it, and he had this plan of redemption for you. That's the overwhelming, reckless love of God. It feels Reckless, because it doesn't make sense to our flesh-driven minds. So the plan was that God would rescue us. Let's look at, now we'll look at Luke 4, where Jesus begins his ministry. He walks in, it says he came to Nazareth. He'd been brought up. He's about to start his public ministry. And he takes a scroll from Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he, was anointed, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, that's you and me, to recover the sight to the blind, that's us, to set liberty those who are oppressed, that is us, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This morning I was reading in Leviticus 25, it just happened to be the, plan, the next step, and it was the year of Jubilee. There is this year of Jubilee, and 50 years Every 50 years, Israel was going to go back to the beginning. Like you were going to get your land back if you had sold it. If you've been sold into slavery, you're set free. It's a glorious time that never happened. Like there's no record of it ever taking place. Why? Well, I've got a lot of extra land that I had. I've got some slaves. Like I don't want to, I don't want to do this thing that's going to take away my riches so those that are in charge would never welcome in the year of Jubilee. So Jesus comes and welcomes in the year of Jubilee. And I would say, when you get to Pentecost, you have an outpouring of Jubilee. If next week we're going to see the response of these disciples, but you have people who are realizing, I have been living in the far off country, not geographically. And Jesus has given us this plan where he has made the path straight that we could come in and he has cleansed us and he has freed us. How? How has he done that? Repentance. I've talked to some people this week about repentance. It tends to be a negative word. It feels a lot like that noise to some of you. The prodigal son story, I just want to share that with us for just a moment. I just want to sit in this story. You're, you're wondering where the illustrations are. Here's an illustration, but it's from the Bible. The youngest son basically says to his father, you're dead to me. And he goes to a far off country. 
And things are great until he runs out of money and there's a famine. And he finds himself in the pit with these pigs, right? And remember, he wants the food he's feeding the pigs. Like, it's not that he's eating that food. He would like to even have that available. But that's for the pigs, not for you. You're a servant. And what does he do? Does he repent? Anyone want to track him with me? The three of you that are still with me, does he repent? Where does, where does this guy repent, the son? Where is the repentance? Well, he comes to his senses. This is awful. My dad's probably still alive and has some money left. I'll just go be a hired hand. And he starts walking back to his dad. Has he repented? He's murmuring penance. He's memorizing the story. He's afraid of the look on the father's face when the father says, it's you? You're dead to me. And he goes, I know, but let me just tell you. And I've got my speech. Where is the repentance? And as he's walking, however far of a trail that is, and he's memorizing this speech, and his body's starting to cringe, this old man is running. Older than he looked before. Grayer than he was. Running with his garments hiked around his waist and tears in his eyes. And he comes to that young man. And before one word can be uttered, he's wrapped him with his arms. That's repentance. It's joyful. You would want to do it. You're free. Come into the fold. God the Father is saying, what must we do? And he's saying, come in. Come. Be baptized. Be adopted. Become one of the people of God. You're in. And then he says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This is not phase two. This isn't three weeks later. This isn't if you're a special. This is the same thing. And you have the robe, prodigal son story. You have the ring. You have the Spirit. You are clothed in Christ. That is your story. If you are in Christ, God is, the plan A is what you thought would be plan B. You are completely loved and completely brought in. It's so amazing that it makes you want to say, but, but wait, where's the, you know, like there has to be something you have to do. You have to leave behind the pigsty, which you want to do. You have to leave behind the oppression and the blindness, right, and the deafness and the lameness, and you come in and it's fascinating because right where we would say that's going to produce a really negative church if you just tell people they're loved by Jesus. What are they going to do? Well, let's look at the next passage. They're going to devote themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And there's going to be awe upon every soul and wonders and signs and meals and possessions. How does that happen? I know I've given you a lot of information. I'm just going to close with a little bit more. Bear with me. I've had people tell me, hey, this is a Reformed church. You can go over 30 minutes. So I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to go for 35 minutes. It's 31. Are we good? Okay. In Galatians 4, Paul is explaining to Galatians the, the way it works. He said, I want to tell you that an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by, date set by his father. What Paul is saying is that's what Moses was. You have Abraham, 
You have Jesus, the law, and Moses is this medium place of protection. But now that the age of the Spirit has come, you're free. Right? In the same way also, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, active obedience. So he followed the law to redeem those who are under the law. That's us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you are not a Christian, this is where the sermon might stop. And you might say, ah, I want that. I want adoption. But if you're a Christian and you're thinking, that feels so far away. I think Paul and Peter and the Holy Spirit are inviting us freshly to recognize all of the ways we've gone back into the prison cell of the law. Paul says it like this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's. But now that you have come to be know, or excuse me, that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back? There's this tendency to turn back. He calls them to elementary principles of the world. So you're the prodigal son. You've just received the robe. You just received the ring. You walk into the tent. You see all your family. It's not very likely that you're going to say, "Why is the fork on that side of the knife?" Right? You're not going to do that. You know, like you're going to walk in and go, I love the fork where you put it. I'm just using something that's really silly. You're not going to walk in and measure the party. Why is she wearing that? Are you? Because you've been set free. So Christians, when you're critical, when you're negative, when you're struggling with particular sin patterns, when you're lacking in joy, You're living according to the elemental principles of the world. You've walked back into prison. You said, thanks, Dad, for the hug. I love my new robe. I love the ring. I'm going to go back to the pigsty. I'm going to hang out there. Because at least there, I have some authority. I worked my way up to being third in charge of the pigsty. That's what you're doing. In the kingdom of heaven, God is saying, there is a new age. But here's the deal. You're going to have to start cutting all those ties that keep death down. They keep life down. You have to cut those ties so that life will lift up. What are those ties? Identity, right? Ways you measure yourself. Have you, here's a, I was trying to think of ways to illustrate it. Have you ever thought, what if Jesus came back today? What's the thing you would miss? Oh, I can't watch that football game. Okay, there's a tie. There's one little tie. Or, oh boy, I can't wait to get married. Or I can't, these are great things. What things would you say? Great things. Have they become more important to you than Jesus' return? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, are we longing for heaven? Are we longing for Jesus? Are we longing for flourishing? Or are we living under the elemental principles? And I want us, when we look at Acts, to begin to pray as a church, how can this freedom take us over like it took them over? How can we be set free? so that we're no longer going through life in the pigsty, but we're going through life with the Father, the robe, the ring for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in, your, in this history.
so much to see. The fact that you have a plan from the beginning of time to rescue your children, and yet at the very same time, we are implicated in the crucifixion of of our king. Lord, teach us to not trivialize that truth. Help us to be both broken by our sin and yet overjoyed to the point of tears by your grace and mercy. Only in the gospel is that possible. Only through Jesus can we have both a true sense of who we are apart from you and a full sense of who we are clothed in your righteousness. Forgive us, Lord, for all the things we cling to that take away from our joy. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to those things we define ourselves by, measuring ourselves by, and therefore trivializing you even more. I pray as we move toward the meal that you have given us that represents your crucifixion, your death, our resurrection in you, our adoption, it represents so many things. I pray, Holy Spirit, it would revive us this morning for your glory. Amen.